Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. This is Flight Deck. It's a podcast about the New York Jets. I'm your host, Rich Savini, and I cover the Jets for ESPN. The Jets delivered a hallmark victory on Sunday in Denver. A huge day for Brees Hall, who scored the first touchdown, and the exclamation point from Bryce Hall, who clinched it with a scoop and score. We'll take a look back, but we're also looking forward here at Flight Deck. On that note, I want to say that in the second segment, we'll have ESPN injury expert Stefania Bell. There's been a lot of talk about Aaron Rodgers and his Achilles injury and him trying to come back this season. Stefania knows a lot about this subject, so I'm going to ask her about Rodgers, his recovery, and his timetable. Again, that's in the second segment. Right now, a 31-21 win in Denver, tempered by another major injury. Elijah Vera Tucker, a torn Achilles. Every time the Jets win a game, they lose a guy with an Achilles injury. little different this time than what Rodgers had in Week 1. With Rodgers, they knew on the sideline that it was the Achilles. This time, they actually left the stadium in Denver thinking there was a chance it wasn't the Achilles. Something about the location of the injury was a little higher on the calf. So I think they were hoping it would be a calf injury, which would have been significant as well, but not nearly as significant as the Achilles. But on Monday, the MRI revealing that it was the worst-case scenario uh, just a really tough break for Elijah Vera Tucker. I think he just needs to stay out of the city of Denver. I mean, don't even go there on vacation in the future. Two years in a row, two October games, two season-ending injuries, both in the second quarter. Rotten, rotten luck for a really good player So who is, suffers a season-ending injury for the second year in a row. Just terrible. So now the question on everybody's mind is what happens to the offensive line? Let's not underestimate this. AVT was their best offensive lineman. Uh, If you're into the stats, he was 16th in the league among tackles in pass block win rate. And that's an ESPN metric, by the way. Uh, An offensive lineman gets a win if he holds his block for at least 2.5 seconds. So that goes as a win. He ranks 16th in the league. Uh, He's a versatile guy. You can plug him in basically anywhere except center. Now they'll be on their third right tackle this season and we're only up to the sixth game all signs point to max mitchell getting the job he came in for abt in denver let's let's not go overboard here he's a mediocre player he had a shaky preseason i don't think the coaching staff was thrilled with his preseason he was inactive for the first two games this year Uh, so i think it's going to be either mitchell or billy turner turner has a lot more starting experience than mitchell We know Nathaniel Hackett likes him a lot. They were together in Green Bay and Denver. He's well-versed in Hackett's system, so you can't rule him out. But if I were betting right now, I'd probably say Mitchell. 
Oh, yeah. And the Jets are facing an outstanding defensive front on Sunday in the Philadelphia Eagles. Never a great time to suffer this kind of injury, but this time the, the timing really stinks. But it gets real interesting after this Philly game because they have their bye week, the Jets. Then they face the Giants. Dwayne Brown will be eligible to play against the Giants. Eligible to come off IR is what I mean. Uh, we know he ain't going to right tackle. I can tell you that much. He's played 16 years in the NFL. Every game at left tackle, there is no way that a 38-year-old lineman is going to make a midseason switch of that significance. So if he plays, if they decide to play Dwayne Brown, it'll be at left tackle, which means you would have to move Mekhi Becton back to right tackle. If I'm the Jets, I would lean against that. I mean, we'll see what happens against Philly. We never know. But I would be inclined to keep Becton at left tackle. It's his natural position. It's where his future lies. There's less stress on his surgically repaired right knee when he's playing the left side as opposed to the right side. He's coming off his best game in Denver. According to our stats, only one pressure allowed in 29 pass blocks. I would leave him at left tackle. He's settling in there after not playing for two years, basically, and you can see him improving week after week. Uh, so I would just go with Mitchell or Turner at right tackle for now. Now, people want to know about Carter Warren, the rookie from Pitt, a fourth-round pick. He's basically be, been injured since he walked through the door, missed all of OTAs, missed most of training camp. First, it was a lingering knee injury from college, then a shoulder injury. Now he's on IR. He has, quote, a ways to go, end quote, according to Robert Sala, which is, of course, stating the obvious, but they're probably going to have to dress him on Sunday as their eighth offensive lineman. There are really no other viable options on the practice squad, so Sala is saying publicly that they're going to stay in-house to replace ABT if they go outside the house, so to speak. Lael Collins, a free agent, probably the best guy out there, uh, released by Cincinnati from IR on September 12th, blew out his knee last season in Week 16. Uh, supposedly healthy now. He's been posting videos on social media. Looks like he's moving pretty well. He'd be an option for the Jets. Not a great one because he's got an injury history, but an option if they want to go outside the organization. Where's George Fant when you need him? I mean, he always seemed like a guy who could come in in a situation like this. Um, I think Joe Douglas should stop drafting offensive linemen. And of course, I'm saying that facetiously, but consider the track record when drafting offensive linemen. First year, Becton has already had two season-ending injuries. Cameron Clark, a career-ending injury. Then have AVT, two season-ending injuries. Max Mitchell missed most of last year, his rookie year, because of a blood clot disorder. Luckily, he's okay now. So it really comes down to Joe Tippmann. Joe Tippmann's like the lone, healthy offensive lineman ever drafted by Joe Douglas. And knock on wood and hope he stays healthy. He's doing actually a pretty good job at right tackle. And, of course, Carter Warren, he was injured throughout his college career. Uh, so there was some risk involved in that pick in the fourth round. And now, of course, he's been injured again. So just a lot of bad luck. When it comes to drafting offensive linemen, this has not been a great run here for Joe Douglas this year. Aaron Rodgers, season-ending injury. Zach Wilson, 
Former number two pick, been up and down, mostly down, although there's some encouraging signs the last couple of weeks. McCall Hardman, free agent signing, $4 million, no role whatsoever. Now they're looking to get rid of him, according to our ESPN's Jeremy Fowler. Looks like they wasted $2.5 million in a signing bonus. Dalvin Cook, $7 million for one year. He's been ineffective so far. How long will they ride with Dalvin Cook? They have Izzy Abanaconda in the wings. Interesting note, though, Cook gets a $67,000 bonus every week when he's on the game day 48, dressing for each game. So they could actually save a little money by making him inactive. So not a great run here for Joe Douglas. The Jets are 2-3, and three, preparing for the Eagles. At least they're on a high note as they go into what will be or could be one of their most difficult games of the season. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're now joined by Stefania Bell. She's a senior writer at ESPN and also the injury analyst. She's been working at ESPN since 2008. She's a licensed physical therapist. She's also a board-certified orthopedic clinical specialist and a certified strength and conditioning specialist. All of that means I can tell you she knows her stuff, and we really appreciate her having here. We're going to obviously talk about Aaron Rodgers. Thank you, Stefania, for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. I feel like you and I are chatting more this year than ever. <laughs> yes, uh, a lot of uh, Achilles conversation going back and forth, but I've certainly learned a lot through the process. So this has been educational for me. And I know I'd like to have our listeners be educated as well because they're reading and hearing a lot about Aaron Rodgers and his Achilles surgery. And he is actually four weeks now removed from surgery. You've seen the photos on Instagram of that Aaron posted. You've also seen the video at the at the Chiefs game about 10 days ago where he was scooting along on his crutches down the sideline pretty quickly. What are your observations from seeing these these images of Aaron Rodgers? Is is it surprising in any way to see him moving so well? I think it's um not totally surprising to me because I understood that he was going into this you know, I hate to say accelerated rehab protocol, but but we have now seen a template for guys starting to push the envelope in terms of recovery. It is still surprising because it's relatively new in the world of Achilles repairs, and it's certainly not for everyone. Um, but Aaron Rodgers said he was determined, and he's certainly making good on that so far. Did you notice, I, I think one of the things that jumped out to me, and I think some you know fans were looking at his social media account, and they saw him doing a workout with this contraption hooked up to his left leg there, and I think people will wonder, like, what the heck is going on there? Um, explain exactly what he was doing in that image, in that, in that workout. As the name would suggest, blood flow restriction, that's where the tourniquets come into play. They're using intermittent occlusion uh, of the blood vessels to stimulate some physiological responses that we wouldn't otherwise see. 
And the short version of the main benefit that you're looking at for somebody like Aaron Rodgers coming off of surgery is we typically see atrophy uh, when you can't weight bear, when you can't exercise. And anyone who's been injured or certainly if you've had surgery on an extremity you or you've been casted for a period of time, you've seen atrophy in person. The muscle just shrinks. Uh, the expression use it or lose it, that's what it means. And if you're not using muscle cells, it's basically your body's signal to say, well, if I don't really need this, I'm just going to shed it. And so you you start seeing a diminish in the girth of muscle. Well, one of the challenges when you're trying to recover from a surgical repair or if you have trauma to a joint is you can't put a lot of the load through it. But we know that we need load in order to make strength gains. So how could you still get strength gains without compromising tissue that's healing or sensitive to load um, when that's what it needs in order to, to, to build muscle strength and girth and hypertrophy? And that's where the BFR comes into play because through this intermittent occlusion, these processes that are stimulated allow you to stimulate uh, the effects that you would get from doing high load strengthening, um, but at a very low load. So what that means is, for example, if you were um, doing a weight machine in the gym and normally you'd put six or eight plates on something to work out at 75 or 80 percent of your max to try and get strength gains. Instead, with the use of blood flow restriction training, you might be able to go down to one plate or even no plates and still be able to increase the strength of that muscle. So how does it translate to Aaron Rodgers? Well, by using that, the idea is to maintain as much muscle function and girth as possible, even while he's in a, a compromised situation that he can't put a lot of load through that leg. Just to follow up on the BFR, if I did, if I ruptured my Achilles playing softball as a middle-aged guy, would would I have access to that sort of uh, you know rehab, or is that more or less for just elite athletes and, and military members? Well, you would now because the the data has supported the efficacy of BFR to the extent that um, people are it's it's becoming more and more available. Um, it's actually available through work comp now. I mean, this is saying something that may not sound like a big deal, but considering that it went from exclusive use in the military population coming over to the civilian population, I I want to say. It's been about 10 years, but I'm, I'm not sure the number off the top of my head. Uh, and now we see every major uh, sports league is using it. And of course, when things get used by the high profile athletes, that's how the general public often comes to learn about it, as you mentioned. But it's equally beneficial for the weekend warrior like yourself, perhaps, <laughs> as it is for the elite athlete. And you're seeing in more and more physical therapy facilities that they have BFR units available. And in fact, surgeons are more and more looking for facilities for their patients, even non-operative situations where um, that people are incorporating this BFR training as part of the rehab process. So Yes, um, I, I believe at the Owens Recovery, they actually have a list of where you can find it available within the state. So people can actually seek it out. But absolutely, I've done it. Uh, I've used it on myself and it is incredible. You almost can't believe 
how hard your body feels like it's working when you're doing a very low load. It's like your brain has trouble processing. You, you start sweating. Uh, it feels like incredibly difficult work. Anyone who's put on a blood pressure cuff at the doctor's office has a sense of what it feels like to have that tourniquet on. And it's on intermittently. So it's not like it's on for an extended period of time. It cycles on for a number of seconds and then it cycles off and you go through the exercise um, as, as you have the, the tourniquet on and then you remove it. So it's just a part of the exercise program. Ren Rogers has said in his interviews on the Pat McAfee show, you know, he was noting his age. Now, we all know he'll be 40 years old in December. And his exact words, he goes, I know my age. Because of my age, the odds are stacked against me. Um, how much of a factor is that going to be in his recovery? And will it hamper his ability to be what he was before the injury? You know, I never knock anyone uh, out because of age, because we've seen uh, that younger people can struggle with recovery more so than um, an older individual. And age is but one of many factors that one takes into account when you're looking at um, things that could help or hinder a rehab timeline. It is true that as we age, your tissue becomes a little less resilient. Um, soft tissues in particular tend to be a little more brittle. You know, you, high water content is important for healthy tissue. Uh, so you may have to hydrate more. Uh, and just some of the age-related changes that we see sometimes manifest in terms of ability to heal. But that being said, it's not a straight fact across the board. There are certainly things in diet and nutrition and exercise and all the things that we all know about when we when we get our annual checkups, but that can really impact your ability to heal. In my experience, I found um, both when I was working as a physical therapist and even now as I go around and talk to different athletes, when you meet the athletes who are super dialed in to how they can complement what they're trying to do with their physical rehab with all the other aspects that we might not have traditionally associated with rehab, like diet, nutrition, hydration, sleep, um, mental wellness, all of those things, if they're all on point, that really does help the overall healing process. And Roger's a smart guy, and I'm sure that he's been looking at every aspect of these things that can contribute to him having a successful return. So I would say just because he's almost 40 does not mean he can't accomplish these goals. He sounds extremely motivated. Every time he speaks, he's talking about how confident he is in his rehab plan and how he wants to get back. And he has stated quite clearly that his goal is to play again this season. Based on your knowledge of the subject and history of rehab, how likely is it that he could play again this season? <laughs> Here's the problem. We just don't have a lot of comps for this we know that Cam Akers is a run, the running back um, who was recently at the Rams and see what the Vikings now. <laughs> yeah. They, they, these things happen so quickly. Um, but he was able to, he had tore his Achilles. It was in the preseason or right before training camp. And he was able to come back as the Rams made their run to the Super Bowl. And think of the demands of the running back position, which are even more challenging than those at the quarterback position. So he he made uh, 
he made everyone aware that there, this was potentially possible. Is it going to be everyone's path? No, not at all. But were we thinking about the ability to come back from an Achilles repair a little bit differently after seeing an NFL running back do that in that time frame? Probably so. So there's not really anything to say, yes, this can or cannot happen because we're so early in the Rogers rehab. And there's essentially three things that really have to happen. The first part is the wound healing. Now, we know based on what he's doing now, the wound is, is healed well. The tendon has to repair itself. And this is so critical because if you start to overload the tendon, we just talked about blood flow restriction training being so important because you could get the benefits without overloading the tissue. If you overload a tendon that is still healing, you put too much stress on it, tensile stress, you can elongate that tendon to the point where it becomes non-functional. And if you think about the Achilles, you think about springs, right? It's what helps you to jump. It's what helps you to push off. And you need that elastic energy in that tendon. When they create the repair, they actually position the foot so it's slightly pointing down towards the ground in a relatively shortened position because you want to make sure that repair is secure before you start stretching it out. So I think the key is that you can be enthusiastic about trying to come back, but you have to not overdo it until the tendon is well healed. After the tendon healing has been established, then you can get really aggressive in terms of return to sports activity, return to all the things that would stress the Achilles. And the question will be at that point, can he do what he needs to do at the quarterback position well enough to return to play? Right. So I think Akers came back in five months. Uh, so if if Rodgers, I mean, for him to play football, I mean, there's only four months of the season. He, he got hurt on September 11th. So October, November, December, January. So four months would be early January. And then I guess it becomes a football decision at that point if he's cleared because who knows where the Jets are going to be. Are they going to be in contention? Are they going to be in, in last place? We don't know what they're going to be. So I'm sure that would be a factor in it as well. But right. And I would just, and Rich, I would just say that typically, you know, that we talk about not being able to accelerate the biology. Like we do all these things to enhance healing, blood flow restriction training, uh, certainly does enhance the healing process, but ultimately the biology of that tissue, that tendon has to heal itself to the point where they're not worried about elongating it. And typically that is in the range of 12 to 16 months. If you talk to foot and ankle surgeons who do this type of repair, Dr. Neil Elitrash, who operated on Rogers, is not the only one who does this type of procedure. I mean, it's been around for about a decade, so there's certainly plenty of people who have experience with it and experience in elite athletes. The number one concern for all these folks who do these types of surgery is not pushing too quickly before the tendon has healed itself um, based on all the reasons that I already outlined. And they say that the comfort range is really in that three to four month window. Dan Marino has said publicly that when he had his Achilles ruptured in, I think it was 1993, um, he did, it wasn't great when he came back. He said his got stretched just the way you described, and it affected him a little bit after that. Now, he ended up playing for several more years at, at a fairly high level, 
But he did admit that because it got stretched, he was never able to regain like the full, you know, maximum use of of that particular Achilles. So I guess it it, it definitely has to be something that is monitored closely for Aaron Rodgers, and I'm sure it will be. Right. And we don't need him to be um, a guy who's scampering all around the field. That's just not been his game of late anyway. But you do need him to be able to protect himself. That's something we talk about a lot when you're looking at return to play for athletes is can you move well enough? Can you move in and around the pocket? Can you get out of situations where the pocket's collapsing or you're trying to avoid a pass rush, uh, trying to avoid being sacked, tackled? Uh, Can you do that safely and effectively? And can you stand and deliver the ball. Um, I think for for him, it won't even be as much about throwing as it will be about those other things. Well, it's going to be, it's such an interesting story. And I'm sure the NFL world, really the sports world, will be watching it closely over the next few months to see. And I'm sure, you know, Aaron, he'll keep us up to date every week for sure on how things are going. So I think we'll have a a pretty good idea of he's not shy about expressing his, uh, his feelings publicly. So I'm sure we'll have a pretty good idea. But uh, Stefania, thank you so much for just sharing some insights on this and explaining this in a way that us uh, non-medical folk can understand it really well. We really appreciate it. Oh, thanks. You know, there's one other little thing I would add, which is, you know, oh, please we, do. we talked about, a, we, we hit sort of the, the big things, but there's little things too, like the footwear that they can adjust the footwear sometimes. And early on when you are wearing a shoe, there's often some kind of support within the shoe to elevate the heel. Like we saw Aaron Rodgers walking in shoe, not in a boot, which is unbelievable, but I have no doubt that he had some elevation there to help lift the heel off so that the calf um, and the Achilles were not under extreme tension. There are things that you can do with the footwear to even assist someone if he was still, for example, not at 100%, which you wouldn't necessarily expect if with an early return, uh, in terms of the footwear he's using or inserts in the shoes, things like that, that could also be of assistance. So there, there's a lot to it. And the nuances of the rehab and the communication that happens back and forth between the athlete, patient, and the person or the people that he's working with are critical every step of the way. This is not a scripted protocol. We do this at this many weeks, this at the, the next many weeks, you know, and I think that's really important for people to take away is it's not a, a cookie cutter recipe. This is really going to be a program that's tailor made for him and everyone's going to learn from it. And if he's successful, it might provide a template for going forward, what kind of things we can look to do because he's going to push the envelope, but he's also smart enough, I think, to respect that there are some, you know, healing parameters that he can't just overrule. He also revealed that, uh, I think about a week ago, that he's also dealing with an ankle issue as well uh, with one of the ligaments in his ankle. So that I think he was wearing an ankle brace at that. Uh, wearing what, like a, a, an air cast. Um, it's a little ankle, very simple, uh, but it's got some stirrups on the side and wraps around for support. And, you know, it's interesting because that that helps his ankle. But if you if you're dealing with anything where you're giving, you, you know, a little extra stability there can also assist in terms of just being able to ambulate, to walk with a more normal gait. But those crutches were there for a reason. That was also to offload the tendon. So if you're pushing down through the upper body, through the crutches, you're not putting as much work through that leg. So all of this is being crafted very carefully. And it looks amazing because people are used to seeing athletes in a cast or splint initially after repair. But um, he, 
I, I will say his progress has been pretty impressive so far, but there is a balance there. And I guarantee you the people who are working with him are, are, are watching that balance very, very closely. We're talking about an elite and world-class athlete, so I'm sure he's everything is monitored down to the down to the T for <laughs> sure. So, uh, well, Stefania, thanks so much. Appreciate your time. I'm sure we'll be in touch as uh, as we go through the uh, the Rogers rehab. So I can't thank you enough. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Here come the questions. At hopeful Mets fan asks, will the Jets entertain trading? for Kirk Cousins. Seems to be a hot topic among Jet fans. We've addressed it in previous podcasts, but now that Minnesota's 1-4 and and Justin Jefferson is going on IR, it looks like Minnesota's season will continue to go south. So do the Jets make this trade? My understanding right now, as we sit here and their record is 2-3, and is that it would be unlikely to make a trade of that magnitude. Number one, they don't have all their draft capital. Their second-round pick next year is going to Green Bay, part of the Rodgers trade. They only have $7 million in cap room. They have a large cash payroll, I believe third largest in the league right now. Maybe Woody Johnson is saying enough is enough. They got $41 million going to Rodgers and Zach Wilson this year at quarterback. The Jets see Wilson as an improving player who they like to believe is part of their post-Rodgers future. And another reason, which should not be minimized, is Aaron Rodgers really likes Zach Wilson, and you wonder how he'd react if the Jets buried his protege on the bench by bringing in a player such as Kirk Cousins. Uh, The Jets do not want to do anything that pisses off Aaron Rodgers. They want him back next year. So my gut tells me, along with some background information. I don't think the Jets would make that trade. And let's not forget, Kirk Cousins has a no trade clause. And even though, yeah, he's due to hit free agency next year, uh, I I think from talking to people, he probably would exercise that no, no trade clause and stay put in Minnesota. So from all indications, that trade won't be happening. Next question from at Vincent J. Accardi. Vinny asks, where do you be uh, offensive line question? Why did Joe Douglas draft another defensive lineman, meaning Will McDonald, when offensive line was clearly the need in the first round of this year's draft? Legitimate question. We know how they missed out on Broderick Jones. He ended up going one spot ahead of them. He has started only one game for Pitt. The next offensive tackle to go was Anton Harrison. Uh, and he has eased off to a good start. He started every game for Jacksonville right now at right tackle. And the guy after him who went was Matthew Bergeron. He goes 38th to Atlanta. He, too, has started every game. So what I'm saying here, Vin, is that after Broderick Jones went, there was really a drop-off at offensive tackle, and the Jets felt that the value was with Will McDonald at that point. Another player they considered there was, uh, believe it or not, Michael Mayer the tight end from Notre Dame. And they, of course, ended up getting in Tipman in the middle of the second round to be their center. Now he's playing right guard. And so uh, that's the answer to that. Hopefully I answered your question, Vin, and maybe we can get together for some golf soon. Next one for Matt Smoke, 42. What's the story with McCole Hardman? It seems crazy they can't find a role for him in this offense. I agree with you, Smoke. Uh, the guy had a role 
on a perennial Super Bowl contender in the Kansas City Chiefs. You're telling me he can't have a role with the Jets on their offense. I spoke to Hardman last Thursday at his locker. He's frustrated. I tried. I'm going to relate a little bit of the conversation, which I think shows his frustration. I went up to him and I said, hey, you know, you did get a little more playing time this week against Kansas City. Yeah, it was like six snaps. I was trying to be positive with him. And he goes, oh, really? He goes, how many snaps did I get? And I said, six. He goes, how many did we have as a team? And I said, I, I don't know, 50 or 60. He goes, exactly. And then he asked me, how many times did I touch the ball? And I said, none. And he goes, exactly. So he thinks he's the best player in the league in space, meaning screen passes, jet sweeps, and zeroes. They have not been utilizing it. There's obviously stuff going on beside, behind the scenes here. This was the coaching staff that signed him. So you can't say he was a holdover from the previous staff. These guys wanted him. He's one of their guys, and now he's going to be gone. They're either going to trade him or cut him. I think they realized that there's no plan for him and that they're going to try to do him a solid by sending him away to a team where maybe he can get on the field. So I think the Jets are working to satisfy him. He's clearly disgruntled. Uh, behind the scenes, he's done some complaining. Well, heck, he did some complaining to me when I talked to him last week. So this has been an abject failure for the Jets, a bad free agent signing. Next one from at NYJ underscore Sean T. Rich, who do you view as potential trade partners should the Jets shop Carl Lawson? What's his value? I love Lawson, but he's buried on the depth chart. Being inactive tells me they don't want to hurt him so they can trade him. Well, he was a healthy scratch this past week, and I tell you, I was talking to him on Thursday, and Carl was very pumped up about being able to contribute more. He said Thursday was his best practice all year. He, of course, missed a month in the preseason with his back injury. Um, another situation where this is not money well spent. Now, they did get him to take a pay cut. He went from $15 million to $9 million, eight of which is guaranteed. So he still has $6.5 million left on this year's contract. It will be difficult to move that much money. Uh, the Jets knew he'd have a smaller role this year with Jermaine Johnson waiting in the wings. They didn't think it would be this small. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't have guaranteed him $8 million, which in retrospect looks like a bad deal for the Jets. Lawson has not been effective. He just seems to have lost some of his burst. Maybe it's the back injury. Maybe it's the effect of uh, the Achilles being two years removed from that. So, yes, I do think the Jets are willing to part with Carl Lawson. He looks to be the odd man out in this defensive line. It just might be hard to find a trading partner. At a Bertram 59, Rich, it seems rather than build from what worked well with Wilson versus the Chiefs and extend his confidence, they totally sat back and played uber conservative and predictable against Denver like they did the first three weeks. Am I seeing this wrong? Tony, you are not. They were more conservative against Denver, but Brees Hall ran for over 170 yards. They had over 230 for a team, and so he was their best weapon. So I have no issue with the plan against Denver. Uh, you got to shoot your best weapon, and that was Brees Hall. So they gave him 22 carries. It could have even been more, uh, and they knew Denver was not a high-scoring offense. And so I think they played that game correctly. It's okay to be conservative sometimes if it helps your team win, and I think that was the case on Sunday. 
The one thing I do have a little issue with, when Wilson was throwing, it wasn't off play action. He only had three play action passes all week, I mean, all game. And that worked so well against Kansas City. He was 8 for 10 in play action. And so you would think with Brees Hall running like he did against Denver that you would have had more play action opportunities. Uh, I think they really could have shredded that defense with play action. Obviously, it didn't go that way, but I, I had no major issues with the game plan. At Rocket Jet 12, hey, Rich, the Jets rarely run a sweep or a pit toss pitch to Brees Hall. They did it just one time in each of the last two games, both for long gainers. Then they never come back to it. Why? Well, I looked it up, Michael, looked up the stats, and I don't have these specifics to, uh, you know, the type of play sweep or toss sweep. But when Brees Hall runs outside the tackles, which is 29 carries this year, he's averaging 4.7 a carry, which is very good. Inside the tackles, that's 25 carries. He's averaging 10 yards a carry with a touchdown. Of course, that got skewed by the long touchdown run against Denver, which was an inside run. It was a counter play inside the tackles. So now he's averaging 10.0 inside the tackles. So I think wherever they give the ball to Brees Hall, it's been working. But I will now keep an eye out on those uh, on those sweeps and toss sweeps. Uh, next one from at Zeus Mode. Rich, I've watched every Jets snap for almost 40 years. No offensive player has ever looked as effortlessly special as Brees Hall. Combo of power, speed, vision, wiggle, oozes superstar. Is he the best Jets offensive weapon in Jets history? First of all, Zeus, I admire your dedication for almost 40 years watching the Jets every snap. That takes a special kind of dedication. Is he the best offensive player in Jet history? Not yet. He's rushed only 134 times. Now, I will say this. He has the highest per carry average in Jets history for any player with a minimum of 100 carries. 6.3 per carry is just crazy. But again, only 134 carries. Uh, I want to see him put out a full body of work, a full season before I put him in the category of a Curtis Martin or an Emerson Boozer, or a Thomas Jones, who was so good for the Jets for a short period of time. Interesting note here, as I was looking this up, and I will tease him the next time I see him, Greg Buttle actually has the highest yards per carry average in Jet history. It was one rush for 26 yards, and I don't know the specifics, but I'm guessing it must have been a fake punt where he was the up back. I will ask him when I see him, but Greg Buttle, the highest per carry average in Jet history. I'm sure he knows that already, knowing Greg, but I'll remind him. But for my money, Wesley Walker has to be up there as the best offensive weapon in Jets history. 71 touchdowns, 19 yards per catch. Amazing. Don Maynard, Hall of Famer. He was right there as well, 18.7 yards per catch. Different era. I get it for sure. And Brees Hall has has a just a incredibly bright future, but I want to see it over a little bit of a longer term than 134 carries. The Jets and Eagles have a unique rivalry. They've played 12 times over the years. The Eagles have won all 12. 
There's nothing quite like this in the NFL. It's one of only three rivalries where one team is undefeated. And the other two don't even come close to this. The Eagles are 6-0 against Houston. Minnesota is 5-0 against Houston. Now here you have a case where it's 12-0. Rather stunning. In fact, in this rivalry, which is just so weird and quirky, the Jets have had 12 different starting quarterbacks in those 12 games. Zach Wilson on Sunday will become the first to start a second game against the Eagles. We've seen 11 head coaches during this rivalry for the Jets. Sala will face them for the second time. The only other coach to face them twice was Walt Michaels back in the 1970s. We've seen some horrific passing days by the Jets quarterbacks in this rivalry. Eight of those 12 games under 200 yards passing. Uh, Al Woodall, 160. Richard Todd, 100. Glenn Foley, 186 and four picks. The weirdest one, 2003, Herm Edwards comes up with this cockeyed quarterback plan. He starts Vinny Testaverde, brings Chad Pennington in in the second half. Doesn't work. They lose. Uh, recent years, Nick Falk, uh, Luke Falk, rather, 120 yards passing and nine sacks. Weird rivalry, but here they go again. The Eagles, obviously, 5-0, one of the better teams in the league. They're fifth in scoring. They're 13th in scoring defense. They're solid everywhere. If they have one Achilles heel, and pardon the phraseology, given what's happened to the Jets, but it would be their pass defense. Uh, they've given up 11 touchdowns. They have only two picks, and they're allowing 268 yards passing per game. Now, some of that is because teams are playing catch-up against them. But still, a little vulnerable in the past defense. Another thing to grab a hold of if you're a Jets fan, Minnesota, or rather Philadelphia has only one win against a team with a winning record, and that was Tampa Bay. They're now 3-1 and one Tampa Bay. So they haven't not faced the toughest schedule. One thing the Jets should be concerned with, the Eagles running game is outstanding. DeAndre Swift is averaging 5.7 a carry, and Jalen Hurts, 206 yards rushing, He's very, very dangerous on designed runs and scrambles. The Jets have had some issues in recent weeks with quarterbacks running. You saw it with Mahomes, had a couple of big scrambles. Even so, with Russell Wilson on Sunday, the Jets have to fix that. I think a key player for the Jets in that situation would be Quincy Williams. He is so fast at linebacker. Maybe you want to use him as a spy. That's something to keep in mind. The Eagles receivers are outstanding. A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith. Very, very important this week that D.J. Reed gets back from his concussion. Uh, last week, the Jets started Bryce Hall, and God bless him, he made a touchdown at the end, but the, the Broncos did not test him at all during the game, which was just stunning by the so-called genius Sean Payton. They uh, had a backup cornerback out there and really did not try him at all, so that'll be interesting to watch. Look, I'd like to say the Jets are going to win this game, but I'm just going to go with uh, common sense here. The Eagles are the better team. Now, maybe the Jets can push this into the fourth quarter. I think they can, but I just don't see the Jets beating the Eagles this week. So I'm going to say Eagles 27, Jets 17. Eagles are a very, very strong team, arguably one of the two or three best teams in the league. And so the Jets would go into their bye week with a 2-4 and four record. Not great, but yet not a situation where the season's over. So uh, there would still be some hope as they come out of that bye against the Giants. I want to thank our guest, Stefania Bell, the ESPN injury analyst, for her insights on Aaron Rodgers. And, of course, thanks always 
to our producer, Jeff Scopin, and we'll talk to you next week on Flight Deck.